Okay, thank you, Carla. Uh, God, you know, works in mysterious ways. Um, like before Christmas, I'm reading the Obama memoir, and I say to Julia, it's amazing what presidents have to learn as they take office. Julia replies, can you even imagine doing that job? Okay, I am about to incriminate myself. Uh, in, in my defense, it was late. My verbal sensor was half asleep, so my residual male pattern maleness was temporarily in charge of my brain, and it made me say, sure, I could imagine being president. Julia looks at me over top her glasses like that, and she says, I'm going to order you something I saw on Facebook for Christmas, and she gets to work on her phone. This is what comes in the mail two weeks later. It's a coffee cup that reads, carry yourself with the confidence of a mediocre white man. I, uh, I have that coffee cup staring at me uh, when I do my sermons, and I put sand in it as kind of a symbolic uh, reminder that that coffee cup came to mind uh, again when Sarah Rudin's translation of the Gospels was released this month, uh, background to um, Bible translations. The best-selling modern translation is the New International Version, translated by a committee of 15. The original committee was, of course, all men, I think all white men, after 10 years, one woman was added. Uh, now two women are on the translation committee. Um, there are also translations by single translators. <clears throat> so before Sarah Rudin, virtually all solo translations of the Bible were by men. Two, J.B. Phillips, the first one I ever read, and Eugene Peterson were pastors with no special training in translation. Another, Kenneth Taylor, had a pastor education and worked as a publisher, no special training in translation. His Living Bible is the best-selling solo translation. It's number four on the versions of the Bible popularity list. Sarah Rudin, by contrast, just out, has translated innumerable ancient works of literature and written a book on translating the Bible and a book on Paul's letters. She's familiar not just with the high classical Greek literature that Bible scholars know, but also what she calls the dirty books, popular writings of that period that entertained the people. Even the so-called experts who translate the New Testament in committee translations like the NIV are unfamiliar with this material, but it really helps to understand the popular level Greek that the New Testament was written in. So Sarah Rudin knows this material inside out, and she runs circles around the good old boys. When her new translation uh, arrived last week, I devoured the Palm Sunday accounts, which blew me away. Um, they were read this morning. Uh, then I heard an interview with that, that version was from uh, uh, Matthew's Gospel. Then I heard an interview with Sarah Rudin, and she says so many translators of translations of the New Testament miss the humor and the subtleties and the intense emotional appeal of the writing. She says popular authors of that period, including those who wrote the Gospels in what was called Koine Greek or Street Greek, Common Greek, 
knew that they had to grab the attention of their audience and they were very adept at doing so. So she captures this in her translation because she has the chops. So Rudin knows um, the street Greek for crowd connotes mob. So in the events around Palm Sunday, the word that means crowd or mob is used several times. And it's always surrounded by lurking danger and intense emotion whenever it's used. So this is the emotion that Rudin conveys vividly where other translators fall flat. So let's dig in. Uh, uh, our reading, Jesus mounting the donkey for his final entrance into Jerusalem, takes place after a long journey that started in the morning as Jesus left Jericho. And Jericho is the lowest elevation on earth. And uh, he was making the uh, like um, part of a day long journey toward Jerusalem, a steady climb up to a much higher elevation. So whoever wrote the gospel of Matthew wants us to feel the impending danger of the day. So on his way out of Jericho, a crowd that has already formed around him uh, as he's heading for Jerusalem, they're probably going with him to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And two men in the crowd who have lost their sight start yelling, Rudin's translation, yelling at him, son of David, have pity. Then her translation again, the crowd scolded them and warned them to be quiet. So her, her translation captures the hostile turn of the crowd toward two men making a ruckus. Jesus stops, calls these guys, asks what they want, Jesus didn't assume he knew what people wanted. He asked them. They say, open our eyes. Next, where other translations have moved with compassion, blah, blah, blah. Rudin has it more in keeping with the emotional intensity of the, the original Greek. And Jesus was wrenched by pity and touched their eyes. And right away, they could see again and followed him. So the author of Matthew's gospel is setting the scene with Jericho in the morning for the Palm Sunday triumphal entry later in the day. He's capturing the emotion as the crowds from the hinterlands surge into Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. Tensions are high wherever crowds are, especially under Roman occupation. And those people traveling with Jesus were called people of the land. They were lower class, viewed as inferior by the Jerusalem elites those running the temple, the scholars, the experts, and certainly the reinforced Roman troops on the lookout for sedition in Jerusalem for the festival. The people with Jesus are desperate people, like the two men who got his attention on his way out of Jericho earlier in the day. Later that day, Jesus has arrived at the Mount of Olives, where he, he can look across the Kidron Valley and see the Temple Mount. So he's in clear eyeshot of the Temple Mount, can see the people, it's very, it's very close. He tells two disciples to commandeer some donkeys at a nearby village for his entry into the big city. Now, to this point in the gospel, he's always discouraged crowds that wanna make him into a king. So, so he heals and then he tells people to keep it to themselves. He, he moves from small village to small town, but now he's enacting an old prophecy of a different kind of ruler an unexpected lowly ruler, could be anyone, riding into the city on a donkey. This is something special happening and everyone knows it. When they see Jesus enacting this 
well-known prophecy beginning on the Mount of Olives as he descends the valley and then up to the Temple Mount. They get all excited. They throw their cloaks on the road. Now, most of these people only had two articles of clothing in their possession. So the one they throw down on the road is not one of 20 spares in their closet. Uh, Rudin's translation brings out the desperation that other translators miss. They start uh, chanting, she says, in piercing voices, Hosanna, which Reuben notes is Hebrew or Aramaic or rescue, please. The Hosanna songs that I knew about uh, you know, back in the day were like upbeat, happy clappy tunes, but the word is a desperate cry, Hosanna, rescue, please. So for these people of the land, most other leaders offer little hope of rescue. Jesus was their only champion at this stage, the kindly and wildly popular Pharisee uh, Hillel, much beloved by the common people having died maybe 20, 30 years earlier. Rescue, please, son of David. Like, if not you, who? Rescue, please, in the highest places. Remember, they are now at a high elevation, having ascended from the lowest place on earth in Jericho, near the Dead Sea. Rescue, please, with piercing voices, they cry. Desperate people only have desperate hopes. So in Matthew's gospel, that very day, as Jesus descends into the Kidron Valley from the Mount of Olives, then up to the Temple Mount, he enters the court of the Gentiles. This is the crowded area of the temple uh, precinct. And he disrupts the temple commerce. So he's overturning the table. He's kicking over um, the, the backrest chairs, the backrest chairs, as Rudin translates it. She, she knows there are particular kinds of chairs that show up in the popular literature. She is also familiar and they have backrests. So she brings that out in her translation. This was a prophetic act too, like, like religious institutions everywhere. The temple has a business side um, and the outsized influence given to the business side of the temple angered Jesus. I wonder what Jesus might do with the Joel Osteen daily inspiration cube on sale now for $34.99 online if you wanna get one unless we have a chamber of commerce object him to what Jesus was doing, Jesus well knew he, was put, he wasn't really putting anyone out of business that day. This was a temporary disruption. It was a prophetic act. The next day, all was back as before. So then after he tips the tables, the most desperately afflicted among the people of the land who came with him now swarm into the temple courts, and he does his healing among them. All this against the emotional backdrop Rudin's translation helps us feel it, of anger with the temple authorities who are angry with him. There's anger, anger all around. Everyone is on high alert, alarm. Luke's gospel adds another layer of deep emotion to the scene. Instead of disrupting the temple commerce, the day of the triumphal entry, as in Matthew, Luke has Jesus looking around at the temple like a tourist might, and then just turning in for the night. In Luke, he comes back the next day to disrupt the temple commerce instead of, so instead of anger, Luke stresses the sorrow of Jesus on the day of the donkey. Jesus has intense sorrow with weeping as he looks over the city like a spurned lover. 
aware that the city-based leaders will turn on him, he's, he seems alone in his sorrow at this point. So why these different sequence of events in Luke and Matthew? John's gospel has the disruption of the temple at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, maybe like a year and a half earlier. The, the gospel writers, had they had sayings of Jesus and stories of Jesus that were circulating based on eyewitness recollections, but that they weren't written down or recorded as they were happening. Uh, Matthew and Luke are writing decades after the events, and they're stitching together a narrative as best they can to convey Jesus. They may, may or may not have been familiar with each other's sources. Reynolds Price, the 20th century Southern novelist, a gay man who loved Jesus and did his own translation of the Gospels, and had severe spinal pain healed during a visionary prayer experience of Jesus, says the gospel writers had the ancient trust of all those who bet their entire hand on story, whether oral or written, the thin compelling thread of an action that is worth our attention. So what we have in these two compelling threads, Matthew and Luke, is a Palm Sunday mixed emotion cocktail. Desperate hope, alarm, anger, and sorrow. We've been nursing our own mixed emotion cocktails this past year, haven't we? I mean, to mix up the metaphors even more, it's like four sides of a boxing ring. One is labeled desperate hope, another is labeled alarm, a third anger, and a fourth sorrow. And we're like bouncing off the ropes from one side to another, our mixed emotion cocktail in our hands. The other day I'm doing um, my chess app with my grandson and I get a news alert on my phone. Oh, the governor of Georgia, surrounded by the good old boys, are signing a voter suppression bill behind closed doors. And Georgia state legislator, uh, Park Cannon, an African-American woman whose constituents were targeted by this racist legislation had the temerity to knock on the governor's office door, at which point she's arrested and she's charged with a felony. It's like, take another sip from the desperate hope mixed emotion cocktail, alarm, anger, sorrow. Um, we've been sipping this cocktail all year, haven't we? Um, depending on our circumstances and our vulnerability and our awareness and our capacity for empathy for much longer than a year. Intense feelings bottled up, weigh us down. They make us numb. They leak out later in confusing ways. Intense emotion is often mixed emotion and it takes time and multiple opportunities to unpack. Uh, feelings are called emotions because they're meant to flow through us, not just like park in us. So we need places, we need time and opportunity to express them in ways that work for us. So what do we look for instinctively when we have need of metabolizing our emotions? We look for someone who understands. Someone who's not going to question, critique, or judge not going to mollify or manage our emotion. Don't you hate it when you're 
emotions are being managed by someone. Um, we need someone who has been there before, is, is familiar with intense emotion, and is with us now. Sarah Rudin says, the gospel writers don't try to explain Jesus. They don't try to make sense of him in their writings. They are writers who have heard of Jesus and have come within, you'd say, the spiritual emotional orbit of the God who is working through Jesus. And what they really want to do in their writings is to present Jesus to their audience in a compelling way. Reading them, the Gospels, leaves us with so many unanswered questions. I mean, the earliest Gospel, the Gospel of Mark, is missing the ending. It got lost. Uh, but the Gospels are not an explanation of Jesus so much as a presentation, says Rudin. Somehow these writers trust the story. This presentation of Jesus in the Gospel invites us to imagine a God at home with our humanity and with our subtle, mixed, and intense human emotions as they ebb and flow, as they get bottled up and leak out and find expression. A God who is not managing our emotions, but at home with us having them. Maybe even a God who has some divine equivalent of emotion. To be at home with such a God is to be at home with ourselves. It's an unanticipated part of my experience of church during this past year, and I, I'm winding up, uh, winding down, I guess you'd say. Um, but I, I feel more feelings at church than ever. Not the, not the wonderful and sometimes powerful group feelings that happen when we sing together. I do miss that. Uh, I miss seeing the kids running around. I miss Maurice. I, I simultaneously miss everyone and appreciate everyone as we gather in this way. And I just, I don't know, I feel it more poignantly on the Zoom church for some reason. Somehow it's a, a, a feeling hour for me. Um, maybe it's not having to pay attention to as many details. Maybe, maybe it's being alone here in my office, so I'm not even tempted to feel self-conscious. I, I know I'm on the screen now, but I don't feel observed because, well, it's like my book's in front of me. You know how the ground is really dry and the ground is kind of baked dry? A sudden downpour is kind of wasted on it. Um, the ground needs a gentle rain to soften it before it can observe, uh, you know, or absorb a downpour. It's, it's like that only from the inside out. I have all these feelings bottled up inside, necessarily too much happening at once. And first we have to get through it all. But I know I need to find ways to release these mixed feelings. So on Sunday, they kind of bubble up, so to speak. The movement of the feelings is welcome for me on Sunday. And I'm, I'm just speaking from my own experience. You have yours. I think the meditations help me pay more attention to my body where feelings reside. I'm, I'm totally into the, to the uh, I'm, I'm with Carla. I'm totally into the kid minutes, especially lately with the stuffed animals. I'm, I'm moved by the young people reading, by the messages from different people, different voices. I get way, way more out of the announcements than I ever did or probably should. And, and I feel myself beginning to face and name and feel the anger, the sorrow, and the desperate hope as we remember our loved ones and pray for different groups affected by the pandemic with the lighting of the candles 
and, and name a sampling of the indigenous people, the Asian Americans, the Latinos, the transgender people, and African Americans whose lives have been cut short by state-sanctioned, society-tolerated violence. And we do all that in close proximity to the remembrance of the Son of Man in communion, who likewise suffered and did his suffering in solidarity with the many who are like him, oppressed, accused falsely, treated unfairly by systems that are supposed to honor, not make a, a, a mockery of justice. Empathy is a form of feeling and it requires exposing, exposure to the suffering of others for us to have it. All of this is meant to soften us, to inform us, to change us. So for me, at least, the, the resurrection of Jesus only makes sense, not as some grotesque heavenly sign of religious superiority, my God is bigger than your God, but as the fulfillment of the desperate hope of desperate people that the long arm of the universe really does bend toward justice and the falsely accused, the falsely criminalized, and those who love them and stand with them get the final word beyond the grave even. Even the possibility that such a thing is real can grab our attention in the meantime and affect our response to present realities is what I'm thinking and feeling today. So at Tuesday tea time, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you can come to Susan King or Diane Sanda lead us in a mid-afternoon guided meditation after we have our afternoon mid-afternoon break together. So to prepare us for our candle lighting and communion today, I asked Susan uh, to do one of her guided meditations for us today. So take it away, Susan. Thank you, Ken. <clears throat> Thank you for, for those words. Those were, there's a lot to, uh, um, to ponder and metabolize in there. So as Ken said, um, Emotions and feelings reside in our bodies. When we um, encounter things like our desperate hope, um, when we feel alarm, anger, sorrow, and fear, it goes into our body. We literally hold it in our physical tissue. And so there, so this morning, what I'm gonna ask that we do is we're gonna do some gentle breathing. Make, it, um, make sure you're seated in a comfortable position. Your feet on the floor if you can. And take some gentle breaths down into your belly and begin to feel your body with each breath. And as you exhale, allow yourself to relax. And inhale as an inquiry into your body. Where are you holding feelings like alarm and anger, desperation and sorrow? Can you feel them? Is there a place where you're tight? 
Do you clench your hands? Do you furrow your, your brow? Do you hunch your shoulders? Just sense into your body where those feelings could be being held. Now, as we notice that, begin to breathe into that place in your heart where you know that divine love resides in you. And feel that love as you inhale, being exhaled into all of the places in your body that are storing your desperation, your alarm, your anger, your sorrow, and your fear. Deep in our hearts, below the taste of alarm, anger, sorrow, and despair, and the brutal lash of life circumstances, and the aches of the defeats, there lies a fountain of blessing. Feel yourself breathing in and touching that fountain of blessing. Let your hunger for it draw your breath inward and down and into this place. And begin to know an abundance of love that is beyond your wildest imagination. Know that you can breathe into it and it is waiting for you there. Now, as you gently continue to breathe, just notice if there's even one place in your body that feels a little lighter a little more interconnected and touched by the abundance of God's love for you. And when you're ready, gently open your eyes. Amen. <laughs>